This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Second Story. April is our birthday month and we are turning 17 this year. In celebration of our almost adulthood, we here at the podcast are publishing an entire show's worth of stories in order. This is what it's like to come to one of our live performances. Four stories like four courses of a meal or wine flights if you prefer the grape. We recorded these performances last month at Pub 626. First up, we have a longtime collaborator with Second Story, Brendan Kelly. You wouldn't think such large hands could do such fine work. My friend Jeff was tucked away in the corner of a vast soundstage. He was applying the most delicate pinhead of hot glue to the end of a fishing line. He looked content amidst the chaos that is a television commercial shoot, like a big burly Geppetto repairing a fairy's wing. Jeff is a self-made special effects artist who specializes in television commercials. He uses his talents to make TV burgers juicy and mugs of beer frosty, and lucky for me, his starving actor friends employed on commercial shoots. <laughs> the year was 1990-something, and today I was one of Jeff's charity cases. I had moved to Chicago to be an actor. I lived in Chicago as a temp. I survived by taking the lowest of the low-paying jobs in hopes they would afford me, if not the rent, flexibility, so I could take long lunches during which I didn't eat, and where I would spend all of my disposable income on cabs so I could hit those workday auditions, none of which I was booking. Right now, I was in between temp jobs, so when Jeff offered me a day's work as a production assistant on a commercial, I felt like I simply had to take it. What a defeat. My first commercial in Chicago would not be as an actor, but as a production assistant or a PA. PAs, I soon learned, are subhuman forklifts who can <laughs> fit into small places. PAs are but living extensions of broom handles. They are support staff to jumbo garbage cans. And in my case, a chain-smoking, miserable, clueless wreck of a kid with a walkie-talkie. The goal for today's commercial was to sell the Tamagotchi virtual pet. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the Tamagotchi virtual pet was a cutting-edge toy. My millennial friends tell me it enjoyed something of a renaissance about four or five years ago. So how retro, right? <clears throat> It was a small egg-shaped droid thing with a pixelated face. It had a sound chip. It cooed. The hitch was the Tamagotchi egg had to be fed and loved and changed or it would not thrive. Little girls classroom-wide all over the country would go head to head to raise what was essentially an anthropomorphized alarm clock. <laughs> hey, Brian, go get that cable and put it on the dock. The voice was becoming familiar, if not the name he was calling me. <clears throat> it was the voice of the PA who had risen to the top of the pack. He was solidly built and knew his way around. He talked to important people, and they, albeit distastefully, talked back. He was the go-between between us PAs and the people who mattered. By virtue of that, I guess he was our boss. Then grab about a dozen C-47s, he said. Okay, oh my God, C-47s, what the fuck are C-47s? <laughs> my mind reeling, I went out on a limb. Uh, I'm going to need a cart for those, right? Ah, funny, he said. <laughs> no, it wasn't funny. It was embarrassing. I was ashamed I didn't know what a C-47 was. Jeff had said nothing about this skill set. I felt very exposed and like a fraud. I was proving I couldn't succeed in this business as a PA, let alone an actor. I just wanted to cut bait and go home, but Jeff's reputation was on the line, as well as what was left of mine. The cable he wanted moved was stupid heavy. 
Industrial stage lighting sucked the color out of everything except that giant black roll. I heaved and dragged, losing coil after coil of the once neatly rolled cable. Tripping over each one I dropped as I went. Drop, trip, <laughs> humiliate, repeat. I tried not to get in the way of those who mattered. The ad exec, the producer, the director, the Japanese reps, and of course the prized goldfish. Yeah, I found their presence somewhat incongruous too. The outrageousness of their casting was already legendary among the PAs. Boss PA had the scoop. Little bastards were flown in from Japan. They arrived here in a limo from O'Hare. How do you know, asked a different competent PA because I'm the poor son of a bitch who had to babysit them all fucking night. <laughs> Even for an industry known for gross excesses, this seemed a little much. I mean, what could their connection to the shoot possibly be? Were they supposed to be subliminal or you know, make rich kids want a virtual pet to keep their fancy goldfish company? Regardless, they were pretty spectacular fish. I'd caught sight of them during a break. They seemed to be lit from within, like an exquisite orange paper lantern. Their scales looked satin to the touch. The eyes protruded from the sides of the head, giving them look of being genuinely astonished to be in Chicago. <laughs> the mouths opened exaggeratedly downward to make them appear as though they had English accents and were rehashing the latest travesty of the Labour Party while their flowing gossamer fins could have been designed by Edith Head for Grace Kelly. They were an oasis of beauty and intrigue amongst the literal and emotional grime of my day. I'd gotten the cable to the dock. Hey, Bradley, go set up for lunch. Put a hold on those C-47s. Take 10. Oh, thank God, thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you, Mary. On my way for a cigarette, I found Jeff. If anyone knew what a C-47 was, it was him. He couldn't look up. He was tying a metal washer to the other end of that fishing line. I asked what he was doing. Well, as you know, we're having trouble keeping the little buggers in frame. I secretly hoped he was referring to the two child actresses on set, <clears throat> but I knew he meant the divas from the land of the rising sun. You see, one fish at a time would be taken from the tank and put into a bowl on set for the shoot. But someone forgot to tell the concept folk that fish tend to swim around. <laughs> Enter Jeff. The idea is to string this line through the gill where it'll catch, and then we can tether the little guy in place so we can get a shot off. He held up his handiwork and looked at me through dust-caked glasses, pleased. It swung like a pendulum between us. I blanched. This was Jeff's second attempt at goldfish wrangling. For hours that morning, we had tried to freeze the fish into compliance. A few fish at a time were scooped out and put into a smaller ice water tank to dull them. Once one was selected, quiet on set for the bowl, rolling, it would stay sluggish, speed for a take or two, cut but then come back to life under the intense heat of the lights. Ice was added, fish switched out, left in longer, the fishbowl itself chilled. For take after take, I mopped water off the floor. I, of course, felt sorry for the fish, but at least I felt like I was being useful. After hours of being frozen and thawed, nary a fish had hit its mark. They were behaving more erratically than ever, like junkies on a bad trip, swimming in fits and starts, sometimes even backwards. After an intense conference among the big wigs, the idea was scrapped. And now the pendulum anchor. I couldn't believe the lengths of torture these fish were being subjected to. I mean, who knows what a 14-hour flight in a pressurized cabin had done to their little sonars or whatever. And all just to sell more crap. I felt like going PETA on my friend's ass, <laughs> but I couldn't. Not only because it, wouldn't seem un it would seem ungrateful, but mostly because I really didn't have a leg to stand on. For let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I had a secret from my childhood that I divulged only in the last year or so. 
I was about 10 years old and had begged my parents for a cat, which they eventually let me have, a black kitten named Winnie. Winnie was not litter trained and had been peeing on the carpet. It was my job to be sure he didn't anymore or it would be bye-bye kitty. I just couldn't bear the thought of giving up the cat I had so longed for. My father told me the way to stop an animal from peeing where they shouldn't was to stick their nose in it. I added a few swift smacks to the haunches just for good measure. I had to make sure the message stuck. Later that day, Winnie became weak and we took him to the vet who told my mother and me he had died in the examining room. He had been weaned too early and was dehydrated. The vet asked if I had given him plenty of water. I said I'd been feeding him milk. Oh, he said, that would do it. Winnie may have succumbed to dehydration, but I know he died of a broken heart. He was sick and suffering, and I'd spoken harshly to him, no, 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 with each whack. His little neck was as big around as when you hold your forefinger to your thumb. I had murdered an innocent. The pendulum swung, and I regained myself. This wasn't Jeff's fault. Animals suffer and die. Sometimes at the hands of a 10-year-old disciplinarian, sometimes in the service of an otherwise upstanding special effects artist. <laughs> at the risk of cliche, Jeff was just a bigger fish. He had bigger responsibilities, and even if I'd been in front of the camera as I thought I should be, I'd just be another anchor, uh, actor with a fish line strung through his gill. Cool, I said. Hey, by the way, what's a C-47? Before I could answer, the director appeared and I evaporated. I bumbled my way through the afternoon and into the night in much the same way I had that morning, moving things from point A to point B. At about 8 p.m., it was a wrap. Ultimately, Jeff had saved the day, although at first it didn't look too good. Fish strained and spun in mad circles, pulling the anchor. The line was shortened and a second washer added. Then the next fish broke free from the, glee, or, uh, free from the glue, and so more of that was globbed on and bloodily restrung through its mouth until at long last it worked. Or maybe it wasn't the pendulum after all. Maybe they'd just gotten a black kitten of a fish like Winnie, a fish whose tiny spirit had been whacked right out of it. Regardless, the in-crowd popped champagne, the Japanese clients made toasts in broken English while the producers and ad execs sized up each other's mating potential for the rest of the evening. <laughs> boss PA wasn't our boss anymore. He and the other guy were carrying the goldfish tank past me toward the dock. Well, what are they going to do with them? I asked. Flush, one of them cracked. The downward cast of their mouths now made them look eerily like Munch's scream as they looked at me pleading through the water, pleadingly through the water with those big, bulging, panicked eyes. My sense of justice emerged. I simply could not let such exploitation and waste go completely unanswered. Can I have one of them? In the front seat of Jeff's rickety van, I balanced three red solo party cups, each one containing a reprieved fish. They were living souvenirs of a day none of us had bargained for, but some of us had survived. So, Jeff drawled, there's another shoot coming up next week. Interested? My final humiliation was to admit to my friend I wasn't really suited for the work. I thanked him for his kindness. Before he drove off, he leaned over and rolled down the passenger window. Brendan! Yeah? A C-47 is a clothespin. Did you need one? Turns out I didn't. Thanks, Jeff. I didn't do much else for the fish but feed them and change their water. I didn't run out and buy a bubble filter or anything. Maybe not fully cruel, but hardly a valiant attempt at rehabilitation. Within a week or two, they died. I interred them in the toilet bowl like you do. Sometime later, while flipping through Saturday morning channels, I came across our commercial. It was kind of exciting, though it did bring back the embarrassment of that day. A couple of overstyled little girls were propped on a frilly bedspread, giddy with their acquisition of a virtual pet. They opened their eyes wide with wonder when the thing chirped and held hands to their mouths to suppress their carefully choreographed glee. 
I anticipated the real star of the show, our sacrificial fish. Not so far. Huh. Nope. The final shot was a close-up. The Tamagotchi coyly winked a digital eye and word, and there, in the soft focus background on a shelf stuffed with girly treasures, I could make out a blur of orange floating stock still in the center of its bowl and very decidedly in frame. Next, we have a new storyteller. Be sure to check out her TEDx talk. Second Story presents Hadar Lazar. So I tried really hard to think about what words actually are, and I decided that they're the little things between silences. Particularly, words are these little nifty tools that help us hop between two kinds of silences, bad silences and good silences. And when we have a really good conversation, or a really bad one, it's not the words we treasure or hate, it's just the little moments between them and the time that passes after. It's during the time that we see the face of the other person in the conversation and think, you're here with me, you're right there. So when I came to this country during elementary school, I lost all my nifty little words. It just wasn't easy anymore. You see, my native tongue is beautiful. You hear a word, you see a picture. Kelev, dog, is derived from the word lev, heart. Isha, woman, sounds like esh, fire. And then there's English. <laughs> Here is a bastardized history of English. It started off somewhere in Europe, I assume. It sounded rather German. Then it just rolled around the country like this big ball of tar, picking up all this lingo debris. It came to England and settled and got nice and Shakespearean. Then the blob of English just plopped into the Atlantic and bobbed up and down across the ocean until it arrived to the Americas and gained this flat accent. <laughs> I hear a word in English and I don't see a picture. I peel off its layers to reveal French, Latin, German, all these other languages I just don't care to know. And to make sense of it, I tried very hard to attach meanings to the sounds they make. At first I learned the euphemisms and they meant nothing to me. They're all said with a little smile that makes her voice sound like a pleasant ring. Excuse me, thank you, da ding da ding da ding. <laughs> My favorite friend as a kid, Peep, didn't like any of these words either. He had a flop of skater boy hair, a really cool older brother, and a bad stutter. But somehow we were really good at talking. He'd show me an instrument, or a computer code, or his brother's special vase called bong, and say, <laughs> isn't it cool? He thought everything was cool. He thought everything was cool, and he always cared to know what I thought about it. You know, our sentences would start with, it's like, and end with, you know. <laughs> then I collected other words, rude, aggressive, cruel. These words, these words have phonetics that match their intent. They just roll off the tongue, dripping with spite. Then there are other cuss words older kids would whisper into your ears, words like bastard. They force the muscles of your mouth into these provocative shapes and you just mean it, you mean it, mean it the way your mouth just bends and spits. At the time, we lived in the suburbs of New York in townhouses packed together like brick red sardines. Our neighborhood gang consisted of me, my sister Claire, Peep, Chacha, and Antiochus. Antiochus was a boy across the street who was the most muscular middle schooler ever known to men. <laughs> Every night we would hear his dad yell all those grotesque words that forced her mouth into provocative gestures. And the next day he would target these words at us, especially me. So Antiochus found me and Peep one day shooting some hoops. Now I am really good as long as I'm very close to the hoop. So he comes over and tries to make me shoot from further away. 
And I'm like, no, I have no plans of being embarrassed. So I look at Peep, who was behind Antiochus, and he looked like he had no idea what to do with his arms. To his great fortune, his mom comes over and says that it's time for him to go to an appointment. When they leave, Antiochus turns back. He says, do it, do it, do it. And I'm like, no, I, I want to, I want, I want, I want to do it. I want to do it. What you gonna do about that? <laughs> Finally, he stops talking and looks at me. And I think that I have won. Now, two things you need to know. At the time, it was especially fashionable to be a tomboy. So I had my favorite shirt on, which was a black hoodie with a dragon on the back. Being victorious, I was ready to strut away. So I turn around and expose to him my fierce dragon. The other thing, throughout the fight, Antiochus was consuming a bag of sour strawberry jelly beans. So little did I know, but as he was staring at me silently, he was actually accumulating all the spit that exists in his body. So I'm ready to go. My dragon flashes his loser face before I just hear this horrible gurgling noise. Then I feel this pink cannonball of spit obliterate my dragon. Now I walked away quickly. I didn't want him to see me cry. But at home, when my sister cleaned me up, I couldn't help but let out these pathetic little sniffles. Now Claire, bless her, said nothing and just let these sniffles fade into silence. On another summer day, I was playing Zelda, a game that for us was not a game, but a lifestyle. <laughs> In Chacha's basement with Chacha, Peep, and Anteyahus. Chacha said something along the lines of, I used to have the biggest crush on Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> Anteyahus was like, for real? And she's like, I thought he was so hot. Now, I was just munching on a Mrs. Fields cookie, but I pictured Sonic the Hedgehog, and I knew where she was coming from. <laughs> Antiochus and Peep were quibbling about something when all of a sudden, Antiochus had Peep pressed up against the machines of a boiling room. He started twisting his nipples and saying, you're a girl, you're a girl, you're a girl. Peep was desperately trying not to cry, as if crying is the worst sort of proof that you really are a girl. So I began to claw at Antiochus' arm, telling him to just stop it, just stop it. But he was a seventh grader, and I was nothing to him, so he just flicked me away. All these words were caught in my throat. Aggressive, cruel, bastard. But I just ended up saying things as they are. You hurt people. Don't you see you're always hurting people? He said, if you don't like it, just leave. I huffed, puffed, stomped my foot, and said, fine, and I just strutted straight out of there. But as soon as I was outside, I regretted it. It was sunny, and it was summer, and I really didn't want to be alone. I just really didn't want to be alone. So I turned around, saying, wait. But Antiochus just shut the glass door in my face. He burst into laughter, and Chacha did as well. Now Peep, with his watery eyes and runny nose, tried to chuckle. Like, I walked away quickly, but I saw his face. I saw the stupid little wrinkles around his eyes and how his hair fell onto his face. This time his mom wasn't there to drag him away before I was spat at. I went home, got on the couch, and sort of hugged myself in fetal position. I know I told you that words that mean bad things produce bad sounds that fit, but lonely is a really tricky word to own. Lonely sounds pretty, as though the inventor of a word made it beautiful as some gesture of sympathy towards its victims. As I lied there, it was so quiet that I felt like the time outside of me was directed by my unhurried heartbeat and it was just oozing by. I preferred to just cloud of my skin instead of simmer in this bad, rotten silence. It's a strange thing how when loneliness runs this deep, we dwell in it like some wounded animal seeking solitude to die. In truth, we need words, not even comforting ones, to break the spell. If a friend comes to you and says about an amazing meal they ate, how they didn't shave this month, or who did or didn't text them back, <laughs> it's salvation, it really is. So I understood Peep's actions on a later summer day, marked by a different kind of silence. We were sitting at his on his porch, you know, made of bricks so old that moss grew between the cracks. 
we decided to just sit there and let our hair and shoulders and thighs get all warm. And the sun was so white and so pretty that its light didn't just fill up space, it fit like the gaps between the conversation. You don't need me telling you, but this is a really good silence. So Peep turned to me and said, I need to go. In a way, it's the cruelest thing to do, to leave someone during a moment of perfection. So I pleaded no. But he said he was sorry, but he needed to go to see his therapist for an appointment for his stutter. I had no idea what a therapist was, but he said the word therapist like it's a secret. And I understood that he didn't want to leave either. But he needed to go, so the sounds of Sonic the Hedgehog could glide off his tongue easily. It's an important thing to master. It really is. Our third storyteller you may recognize from our last podcast, LaTanya Lane. never heard God talk. I've spent countless hours in prayer. If you did the math, added the, thank you for this food. Please bless it and protect me against any impurities, prayers. Added up the, to the, let me be a witness in school today. Also, any help in pre-calculus would be much appreciated, <laughs> prayers. Added up the, please, Heal her mind after the stroke. All the please, please, please prayers. If you added them all together, it amount to years of my life spent in silent and not so silent supplication to God. And while the practice of reflecting on the desires of my heart, laying them out plainly before the Lord in prayer, always left me with a soothing certainty about the choices I needed to make or with a complete and utter assurance of the future, I never heard any voice. Even when I felt the fire of the spirit burning in my bones until the truth within me came out, the still quiet voice that knew exactly what to say sounded like a, a me I was becoming more than anything else. But God spoke more clearly to others. Growing up, people around me heard God's voice all the time. My dad saw visions of angels and demons. My friends dreamed dreams, and the holy women in my church shouted messages and prophecies in known and unknown tongues during worship. So when my then-husband, Mark, told me he heard God speak, I didn't doubt it. We came from similar religious communities, and God speaking to him fit into a theology and experience we both shared. Still, I was puzzled by the increasing frequency and inscrutable nature of the messages he heard. They made him increasingly unreliable, at first in small, hurt feelings, my overreacting type of ways, that grew into bridge-burning, vow-breaking, why don't you leave if you don't care about this relationship anymore type of ways. I figured his journey with the Lord would be a walk he'd have to take on his own, and I asked for a separation with plans to file for divorce unless something dramatic happened. And while God talked to him all the time, I heard nothing and felt nothing but raw angry and confused. Sitting still and quiet in prayer was an impossibility. Every free moment I had was dedicated to keeping my jobs, finishing my thesis, momming the perfect toddler, and escaping my rage and hurt in the total yet blissful erasure of sleep. Any attempt at prayer was bereft of the quiet, calm assurance that I would be okay or clarity about what I should do. I couldn't hear the voice of what I was becoming and I definitely could not hear Mark. 
I couldn't hear when he called weeping, telling me he couldn't handle taking care of our son. I couldn't hear him telling me how danger was everywhere and he was responsible for saving family and strangers from it. I couldn't hear anything. Have you ever pulled a thread from a scarf and begun to undo the stitches one by one? There's this tiny sound the thread makes as you pull out knot after knot. It's almost impossible to hear if you're not really listening. The sound of things unraveling is almost completely silent. One Sunday evening, sitting with my sister Tiana and my friend Lisa, I heard my phone ring. It was the Chicago Police Department asking about my child. Ma'am, do you know where your 15-month-old son Mel is? It's his dad's day. I Oh, as long as you know where he is. And the officer started to hang up. Wait, wait, no, what happened? I asked. Oh, well, ma'am, there was an incident. A woman called because she felt threatened by Mark, who was exhibiting some strange behavior. We didn't want to take him in because he had a child in the car, but we wanted to verify the child should be with him. Have a good day, ma'am. Click. <laughs> what? <laughs> I called Mark and tried to play it low-key. Hey, what you doing? <laughs> just, just drive it around with Mel, he said. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, it's getting late. Do you think you could bring him to the house so I can start getting him ready for bed? Yeah, yeah, I'll bring him by. I hung up and turned to Tiana and Lisa. So I just got a call from the police about Mark. I said, what, my sister asked, why? I don't know, I said. Before Mel was even born, my sister showed up in Chicago with one question, how can I help? During the separation, she stepped in as mommy number two and on my worst days as mommy number one. So after a while, when my phone rang, I didn't answer it because I saw it was Mark and figured he just wanted to let me know he was there with Mel. Instead, I asked Tiana, hey, can you grab Mel for, for me? I don't wanna deal with Mark right now. I waited for her to come back with the baby, but she didn't. Instead, my phone started ringing. It was Mark. He called and called and called my phone, demanding that I come talk to him, that I needed to come get the baby. I fumed, annoyed at his antics, but Lisa said she would come with me for moral support. I passed Tiana on the way out, and when I got to the back door, Mark had started to drive away. When he saw me, he reversed the car, and after putting it in park, came out of the car to talk. When he got out of the car, only his door unlocked. I pulled at the back door to wake up Mel and get him out of his car seat, but Mark didn't seem to notice. Unlock the door, I said. No, he said. You won't talk to me if I give him to you. I need to talk to you. For months, he'd been trying to convince me to work things out while I was steady filing paperwork to finalize our divorce. Now it seemed fair game for him to use our child to get what he wanted. I don't want to talk to you, I exploded. I don't have to talk to you. That's what divorce means. Open the door. Mark? Lisa tried to help by using her teacher voice, the one she used on her sixth grade students. Just open the door. No, he said, and this time he slammed his fist on the roof of his silver VW Jetta. Huh, I thought that's new. But Lisa didn't seem alarmed. She stood arms akimbo and said, Open the door right now. You're being ridiculous. Mark looked at Lisa and his eyes got larger than I would have thought possible. I know what spirit is in you, he said. What, she asked. I know what spirit is in you and the spirit in me is greater than the spirit that's in you. Okay. A quick note on exorcisms. 
the community I grew up with, the folks who heard God speak, believed in a very active spiritual universe intersecting with our own. Angels and demons inhabit this universe working to accomplish or thwart God's plans. I have seen maybe two exorcisms in my life, and while I found them both to be pretty unsettling, part of my tradition included learning how to engage in spiritual warfare. Casting out demons always started with the type of confrontation Mark had just initiated. When he began addressing spirits and comparing which spirit is greater than who, I immediately understood he was referencing this part of our tradition. And while the language was familiar, the setting was all wrong. Lisa recognized it too. You're scaring me, open the door, she said. I will raise up like a lion and roar, he said. And he did. He opened his mouth and roared. And while this raspy, disquieting, larger than life sound came out of him, he lifted his arms like suddenly he had huge leathery wings and charged towards her. As Mark picked up speed, Lisa screamed and cried and ran down the alley, leaving me alone with this winged lion man. Watching this unfold felt like I was watching a foreign film with really bad captions. All the words were in English, but I didn't understand the way they were strung together, and they didn't seem to correspond to anything that was happening on the screen. I wanted to pause and rewind, or turn to whoever was watching it with me and ask, what just happened? <laughs> I had no idea what to do next, so like a properly trained Southern lady, I just got real polite. Mark came back from chasing Lisa down the alley, and I looked at him, really looked, and realized he was sweating. His pupils were dilated, his eyes were bugging out of his head, and he couldn't seem to keep his eyebrows still. He was pacing back and forth beside his car, talking a mile a minute about casting out demons and his new role as the Christ. I just stood and nodded and smiled, listening for something in his hurried monologue I could grab onto. After a few minutes, Mel woke up and started crying, still strapped into his car seat in the back of the car. Mark snapped out of his promenade and opened the back door, unbuckling Mel and picking him up. Every muscle in my body tightened as I watched him sway and shush the baby. Mark chuckled, looked at me and said, oh, he got scared by my roar. As calmly as possible, I asked to hold my child. Mark firmed his grip and turned the baby away from me. No, he said, you won't talk to me if I give him to you. No, I said as assuringly as I could. No, I will stay right here. I just haven't seen him in a day, and I miss him is all, I said. This made sense to Mark, but whenever I reached for Mel, he would pull away, clinging to his dad. This inspired another high-speed monologue from Mark about how a boy needs his dad or is otherwise doomed to a life of brokenness. I chanted silently to myself not to engage, not to point out all the guys raised by single moms who turn out just fine. Obama is not the point right now. <laughs> I said to myself. <laughs> Getting Mel to safety is. So I nodded and managed not to cringe and breathed a sigh of relief when the back door of the house opened and my sister Tiana emerged to save the day. Hey y'all, Tanya, I'm gonna take him inside to get him ready for a bath, in bed. She reached for Mel. When he pulled away from her too, she said, hey Mel, Tata has ice cream. Do you wanna get ice cream with Tata? And that's all it took. <laughs> he went with her and she took him inside. Now it was just me and Mark. I still need to talk to you, he said. I listened 
as he spoke so fast, his hands fluttering like small jittery birds about how he, he was a hunted man, how there were cameras everywhere, everywhere following his movements. He told me about the woman he'd followed earlier that day, how she had a daughter that seemed in danger, how he needed to tell her mom to keep her daughter safe. I heard how he felt so burdened with this responsibility of hearing so many things from so many voices that sounded divine. He heard them calling his name as he walked down the street and in his home. They told him secrets about the people he met, about the people he knew, about himself. And I nodded. I listened and nodded, hearing this man speaking unknown things in a known tongue. And I tried to decipher the message he so desperately wanted to share. Up until that night, I figured this was a spell Mark was going through. That eventually he would stop with the selfishness and self-destruction. He would come to me all sheepish, realizing all the good he'd left when he stopped trying to build a life with me and for our son. Maybe I even prayed for it. Eventually, the police showed up. Unsure of what was driving any of the action that night, I figured they felt a disturbance in the force and decided to check it out. <laughs> that seemed as likely as anything else, like a neighbor hearing strange roars out their window and calling the authorities. <laughs> police can be a crapshoot. I've been in situations where police officers, through apathy or aggression, have turned a bad situation into the worst situation. These were not those officers. They saw what I saw, a man who'd lost his grasp on reality and needed help. They took him to an ER, not at the closest hospital, but definitely at the scariest. That, however, is another story for another time. I followed the police van in Mark's car, gripping the steering wheel, gulping huge breaths, mind racing. I did not pray, not at first. But over the years since that night, as I learned everything Dr. Google could tell me about schizoaffective disorder, figured out how to set boundaries for Mark's constant crises, or discovered the rhythms and edges of momming on my own, I noticed the occasional prayer slip from my lips. Desperate prayers. Dear big wide universe, please locate Mel's socks and reveal them <laughs> to me <laughs> before we're late to school again. <laughs> Hopeful prayers. Please, let Mel be happy and kind. Keep him whole, and if not whole, let him know getting help is okay. And prayers that sound maybe not like me, but a me I hope to become. Please, 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 give me the strength to walk so near this chaos without letting fear decide. Help me walk with kindness and wisdom as I continue in this life with so few assurances. Rounding home, we have company member Sarah Zamatis. When you look in the mirror, what is your defining feature? For me, it's my hair. 
I have been blessed with a full, thick head of hair that naturally does what it wants with pretty good results. My hair has evolved and changed, and sometimes it has changed me. The first major evolution was back in third grade when my older sister took me for a haircut. This was back in the early 80s when kids could roam free and do such things without parental consent. She loved the short do her friend had just gotten, and instead of trying it on herself, she decided I was the next best model. This removed what society saw as my only defining feminine feature. For the next few years, every time we went to a restaurant, the waitress would ask, what can I get for you, little man? My family thought it was funny, too. So they took to calling me Sam. It took many years of tragic perms and growing it out to recover from this. Honestly, I love short hair on other women, but it never felt right for me. When my all one length glory was restored, the reflection in the mirror looked like me. I, I felt like me. When my husband, Scott, and I prepared to get married, he joked, uh, you know it's in the prenup that you're not allowed to get your hair cut, right? <laughs> so with the exception of a trim here or there, I've let my hair be and it has grown long and lustrous. My crowning glory, my, my source of strength, like, like Samson. And man, did I need strength in the winter of 2014. I lost nine people during that brutal winter. Friends, family, most to cancer, taken in the prime of their adult lives. With each loss, I needed to do something to ease the aching with some sort of action. One day, as I looked in the mirror, I caught sight of my hair, all that hair, down past the middle of my back. I decided I would wrap someone suffering with cancer in my love by donating my hair to be made into a wig. It felt like something, something that felt right. As I researched where my donation would do the most good, winter descended, and it was cold. Honestly, my hair was keeping me warm. I, I think I was holding on to it as some kind of like security blanket against any more change then, my husband, my three kids, and I had the flu, like all of December. We couldn't shake it, especially our two-year-old, Sophia. She had four rounds of it, oh, constant cuddles and cleanup. By the end, our littlest peanut was just spent, skin and bones and bright blue eyes. The calendar turned, 2015. On a bitter day in January, as I was scrolling down my Facebook feed, I saw a post from my friend, Sheila. We had met a few, days before, a few years before while doing a show. I didn't really have the bandwidth for delving into a deep friendship right then, so I did what you do, and we became Facebook friends. <laughs> Today, her post was about an annual event in honor of her daughter, Donna, who had died from a brain tumor at the tender age of four. I had never met this child, but the story grabbed me, as Donna would have now been 10, just like my oldest son. I couldn't imagine what it must be like for her family now without Donna. I read more about this event, and I learned about the St. Baldrick's Foundation. Their gimmick is that people shave their heads to raise funds for pediatric cancer research. <laughs> now, I was not ready to go bald, but I decided to send her a message. Hey, Sheila, I've been thinking about donating my hair in honor of all these people that, I've, uh, that have, I've lost to cancer recently. I mean, I don't know any kids with cancer, but all research is good, right? Can I come chop my ponytail and raise some money for you? Her answer came in all caps. We would love to have you on board. <laughs> Little did I know that my entire world would change just 12 days later. At 9.19 p.m., I sent Sheila another message. Um, could you please call me ASAP? I'm at Lurie Children's, and I just got word that my daughter has a mass in her brain. I could really use you now. That flu back in December wasn't a flu for our two-year-old baby at all. 
It was pressure building up in her brain because this mass was blocking the flow of fluid. In 10 years of parenting, we had only been to the ER once, but here we were being asked to agree to emergency surgery to save our girl's life. I haven't heard back from Sheila. I, I wanna call her, I can't call her, it's too late. Scott took my arm and said, you can call anyone you need, she'll answer. I was reeling and I couldn't imagine consenting to surgery. I didn't even begin to know how to process the world that was crumbling around me. Thank goodness Sheila answered. She had stood where I was standing. She calmed me saying, Sarah, just breathe and listen. The doctors will do everything they can. You need her to have this surgery. I went back into the room and I gave my permission for these people I had never met to drill into my child's skull. I sang, you are my sunshine to her as they gave her the first anesthesia. As I leaned down to kiss my baby's head, I had to push my hair out of my face, which was damp with tears. As she was wheeled away to the OR, we were guided to an empty hallway lined with vacant patient rooms. It was a ghost town, packed with furniture and machines, but no people. It was the loneliest place on earth. The next few days at the hospital were an absolute whirlwind of activity buried in a deluge of information with a very steep learning curve. It felt like a million people came into the room every day and they all spoke a foreign language. Our baby lay there weak and listless. There was a tube coming out of her head, draining fluid into a bag. I didn't know how to touch her. Her hair was a tangled mess, and she had a large bald spot where they had to shave her head for surgery. It was all so sudden. One day, I was caught up in my own grief about others passing away, and now here I was, fighting for my girl's life. At the end of the week, there were more surgeries. A shunt, a, a permanent drain was placed inside her head and a port for her impending chemotherapy. Just two days later, we were sent home. And there was a flood of stuffed animals waiting for us. <laughs> I feared they might take over. But I understood people's need to do something. I wished I could do more too. The biopsy results came back and her mass was classified as a glioneuronal tumor. Uh, don't bother Googling that, it will blow your mind. <laughs> Sophia's tumor was low grade, meaning not aggressive, but her chemotherapy had to begin immediately, weekly treatments for 15 months. Educating ourselves was a huge task. Clinical trials, protocols, side effects, oh, side effects. Sophia's two chemo drugs both had massive lists of side effects. And topping both lists, hair loss. This was no time for vanity, but the thought of my only little girl losing her hair was heartbreaking. The doctor said to expect it to begin falling out quickly within the first few weeks which brought me back to my pledge to St. Baldrick's, made less than two weeks before my entire world changed. My stakes had definitely gone up for this event. In order to make it um, fun, I decided to have people vote with their donations. Should I cut my hair into a smart bob or go for it and shave it all off? The challenge was on as there was only 26 days until the St. Baldrick's event. It felt good now to have a meaningful way for people to help support us while providing help for others as well. And maybe the animal avalanche would slow. <clears throat> I wrote a fundraising letter to everyone I knew. I didn't know what would happen. Every day, the contributions increased. People told their friends who shared with their friends and donations poured in from around the world. Businesses got on board to champion the cause. This sweet little nine-year-old boy signed up to shave by my side in Sophia's honor. Overwhelmingly, people wanted me to keep my hair. 
I was relieved. But part of me was secretly hoping that the votes would make me shave. Everything else had changed. Why not be bald? Then I would look as vulnerable and scarred on the outside as I felt on the inside. March 28th arrived, and nothing prepared me for what greeted me when I walked in the door of candlelight. Our tiny corner bar was packed. It was bigger than my wedding. People turned out from all corners of our lives. Friends, family, school, church. Fire code was broken. <laughs> the closeness of the crowd mirrored the connection we all felt joined together to beat this thing. I had that feeling new mothers describe when they've just delivered waves and waves of oxytocin just kept coursing through my system. I was so moved by the other 30 shavies, the participants in the event. Donna's dad shaves every single year. One woman flew in from Texas to shear her long blonde locks. An entire family shaved in honor of their sweet boy they had, they had lost just months prior. And then there was me, just two months into Sophia's battle. I retreated to the solitude of the bathroom, and I divided my hair into multiple small ponytails. Uh, the lighting was not kind. <laughs> and I could see the multitude of ways that these months had aged me. My face was flush, so I splashed some cold water on it and I headed out to the chopping block. As I waded through the crowd to the front of the room, it was reported that the event had crested over $100,000. As I mounted the platform for my turn, Sophia arrived, fresh from her nap. It was like that scene in The Lion King as she was handed to me and I lifted her up. Everyone in the room cheered. She was understandably overwhelmed. <laughs> How many two-year-olds do you know that have hundreds of people cheering for them? As she happily went to her dad's waiting arms, I had an idea. I announced to the room, who wants to cut my hair? $100 a ponytail, hands shot in the air, and 10 volunteers signed on to take a turn. I turned to the volunteer barber and said, can I use your cutting shears? She looked at me like I was crazy. Um, I don't have my shears, I'm shaving. So I called out to the bartender, can we use your scissors? A dull, rusty pair of bar scissors came crowd surfing along a sea of hands. I was in full-on surrender as my tresses were dismantled. Seven out of ten of the ponytails were cut by children. <laughs> Laughter and cheers deafened me with each snip. The weight I had felt that threatened to crush me daily for the last two months seemed to lighten as I was relieved of my locks. And just like that, 15 inches of hair was gone. Afterwards, as I was in the bathroom again, I caught sight of myself in the mirror. <laughs> my hair was chopped in large chunks, <laughs> bluntly cut and all at different lengths. My hair had never looked worse. And I had never felt more beautiful. In the one year since that day, my hair has grown, as has Sophia. When she smiles, her chubby cheeks rise and they crinkle up her bright blue eyes. She still is in treatment and we're constantly braced for bad news. But fortunately, the ride has had more ups than downs. Sophia refers to all of the hospital staff as her friends and ironically, she has never lost a strand of hair. Next weekend, we will come together again to conquer kids' cancer at candlelight. Anybody feel like a haircut? <laughs> to donate to St. Baldrick's, please check the blurb accompanying this podcast. This show was curated by Julie Ganey. It was directed by C.P. Chang. And the sound design was by me, Nick Kawahara. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, 
the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.